Would you please join me in prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that our eyes would be lifted towards Christ right now. Even though we are in the Old Testament, we pray, Lord, that we might see Jesus clearly, that we might recognize his great love for us, and that in the midst of that, we would offer worship. And that, Lord, we would look to see how our marriages might portray the beautiful display of the gospel to the world. So allow us, Lord, to to have our gaze lifted towards our Lord Jesus, and in that, may we emulate him. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, they both sat across from me in my office, and each of them were in their mid-20s. She had married young, and she had actually left her husband for him. And she had had two children from her previous marriage. He was known as being self-indulgent and being a narcissist, always demanding attention from others, and he had a really foul temper. They were meeting with me because they were in constant conflict, and the young man's parents thought that I might be able to help them out. Imagine my surprise when they told me that they thought the best solution to their continuous friction was to get married. And so I asked them what made them think that merely declaring vows to one another would enable them to have a successful marriage. And he responded to me by looking at me and saying, love, love will keep us together. I too was in shock to hear that Captain and Tennille tune that is probably playing in your head right now. You may thank me later for that earworm. But sadly, that is what most people think marriage is about, a feeling of constant abiding love. The God of the Bible who created marriage has a much greater meaning of love than just feelings. Last week, we began the book of Adam in Genesis. Please turn back to Genesis chapter 2. After the majestic prologue of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, Genesis contains 10 individual books that build upon one another chronologically. They are recognizable by their introductory words, these are the generations of, or the account of, depending upon your English translation. And the first of these books begins with the first human being, Adam. Now, if you were not here last week, that's okay, but let me point out three observations that will have relevance for the second part of chapter 2. First, we saw that Adam was created from the dust of the ground. God breathed into him, and this is what gave him life. The text says God breathed into his nostrils, which conveys intimate connection between Adam and the Lord God. Second, we saw that Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to cultivate it. Presumably, Adam would be expanding the borders of the garden throughout the earth. We noted how the concept of work was instituted before sin came into the world. It was meant to be a good gift from God, a task that we would find pleasurable that would allow us to display the Lord's glory as we imitate our Creator. And third, as part of this stewardship over the earth, we saw that Adam had a priestly role of protecting the garden from death by obeying God's single command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Now, we'll need to keep these three observations in mind as we move forward. And we'll take these last seven verses like we covered the previous 13. I'm going to exposit the meaning first and then draw out our theological applications afterwards. Everything seems fine and dandy in the creation story up to verse 17. And then we have a startling statement in verse 18. For the first time in the narrative, we have God declaring something is not good. This is in clear contrast from the prologue. When we look back at the creation days of chapter 1, we have God declaring that what he created was good. For example, in verse 9, after God separated the water and the land, we have the words, and God saw it was good. In verse 10, when uh, the first life of vegetation was created, God saw that it was good. On the fourth day, when God created the starry host to mark the seasons, he saw that it was good, and so on. But now in the middle of chapter 2, we have the first time that God says the situation is not good. It is not good that the man is alone in the garden. Now, we know our God. He does not make mistakes. Everything he does is righteous and true and perfect. I don't think he got to this point and realized that he forgot to make woman. After all, in chapter 1, at the end of the sixth day of creation, God does state that his whole day's work was good. This declaration is for the man's benefit. It not only reveals that God is concerned for Adam's loneliness and that he desires him to experience intimacy with another, it also lets Adam know that what he is about to do in special creation is just for him. He announces his intentions here to make a helper fit for him. Now, there are two important Hebrew words that are used here. The first word is etzar. And help is a literal translation. We commonly know the name Eliezer from Exodus 18, which means God is my helper. Eitzer is also an adjective that is used of God. For example, in Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help, where does my Eitzer come? My help, my Eitzer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This word does not mean servant, or slave. It refers to one who comes alongside to aid. And the next word translated as fit for in English is the Hebrew word nejed. It means corresponding to or opposite of as though looking at a reflection or that which complements. This uh, person that God is about to make, this helper that complements Adam in his work in the garden. This helper will fit Adam and make him fulfill uh, or help him fulfill his divine commission to be fruitful and to subdue and have dominion over the earth as taught in chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. But take note, this helper is part of God's plan. God does not bring Eve into the world because man is sinful. Sin doesn't enter the picture until chapter 3. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for spoiling the story again. (laughs) God does this because man needs help. Now, this should not surprise us. I don't know of a single woman who would say that men do not need help. (laughs) And I, for one, thank God that he has provided me a suitable helper. So just to show how unique this is, God does something spectacular at this point. 
He causes what is commonly referred to as the parade of animals to pass before Adam. And there are two purposes here. One is to have Adam name the animals, and second is for Adam to find a suitable helper from what has already been created. Now, I'm often asked if this doesn't mess up my 24-hour hypothesis to have this myriad of animals come before Adam and pass before him. No, it doesn't. I do think this was sort of a Lion King kind of moment as the animals came before him. I also would not be surprised that if at this point there were not as many variety within each individual species yet. I still think we can manage to have an all-powerful God cause verses 5 through 23 to occur in a single day. And if we have a boat filled uh, with animals through a flood and we can part an entire sea and split it in two and a resurrected Savior who paid for our sin, I think we can have Adam spend the majority of his day naming different species. But we have already observed a couple of weeks ago that by Adam naming these animals, he is responsible for their stewardship. We should also notice that these animals were formed in a similar fashion as Adam. They also were not created ex nihilo, but they were formed from the dust of the ground just as he was. Yet conspicuously absent is the breath of life that God granted Adam. That intimacy is not given to the animal kingdom. There is a distinct relationship between the earth and Adam and Adam to the animals that he was called to rule over. And as these animals passed before Adam, his search for a suitable companion among them was futile. This only heightens and highlights all the more what God is about to do next in the story is just for Adam. Now we're told in verse 21 that Adam is put under divine anesthesia. God takes one of Adam's ribs from it and he fashions a woman. Now I love what the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry wrote about this. I'm going to quote from him. That the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, and under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. It's beautiful, isn't it? I also love the meticulous care described of God for Adam here. He didn't leave Adam bleeding and, and waiting for his wound to heal, but he covered it with flesh. It would appear from what happens next, Adam makes an instant recovery from his surgery. And verse 22 tells us that God gave away the first bride as he brings her to Adam. I can only picture in my head the the sweetness and, and the innocence of such a moment. Eve's probably tittering and giggling as she gazes at Adam for the first time. And God gently prods Adam saying, Adam, wake up. And Adam, slowly opening up his eyes and seeing Eve for the first time, something tells me he said something like, whoa, man. Sorry, the dad jokes just kind of overtake me sometimes. He may have said that. But here are the first recorded words from Adam in Scripture. We are told, or we're not told, any of the names that he gave the animals, and it should not escape our notice that the very first words he speaks is in regards to his wife, whom he is to enter into this one flesh relationship. And you can almost hear the yearning in his words after a long day of searching for a suitable companion. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Finally, 
one like me. How happy he must have been. And to show this newly created person is special, Adam names her with a bit of Hebrew wordplay. The Hebrew word for man is ish. And because she is like him, he names her gender isha. Eve is special even in her designation. And we'll learn her formal name in chapter 3, verse 20. But before we move on, we should not pass over verse 23 lightly. Let me draw your attention to two significant features here. First, Adam names the woman. This means like the rest of creation, he is responsible for her care. She is under his rules, so to speak. Now, we tend to think of such authority in a negative light, but let me remind you that at this point, sin has not entered the world yet. There is no way Adam could have abused such authority. Eve would have viewed Adam's care for her as she would God's overall care for them both. That he would have her best interest at the center of his heart, particularly in protecting her from death by obeying God's single command. And second, Adam notes that this relationship is more intimate than the rest of creation. Adam is formed from the dust of the earth. The animals are also formed from the dust. But the woman is formed from the man. Adam is to have a relationship with the ground from whence he came, but this relationship with the woman is much more intimate. And he declares it to be so. And we'll see the significance of this next week when we get in chapter 3 and we see how all these relationships are broken down due to sin. And this causes Moses here to intervene at this point in the story and provide a commentary on what just transpired. He says, This is the first marriage. From henceforward, a man will leave his parents, and he will hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The couple leave their previous families to form their own family. And the verb that's translated as hold fast means to cling to with intention. Moses uses it frequently in describing Israel's relationship to Yahweh. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. For you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. The bride and the groom commit themselves to one another. They cling to one another with intention. And the purpose is that the bride and groom will now be known as one. They are of same heart and mind. Each has their own identity, but they are known as one. And once again, we're given a picture of the innocence of the moment. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, while this verse speaks of the intimacy of their sexual union, it does more to highlight the vulnerability between the man and the woman. There were no secrets, no reason to be ashamed before the other. They they were made known and they were completely known by the other. Now, when I was a youth pastor and I taught on these verses, it never failed that some boy in the room would say, well, was she pretty? Well, I always responded, I think that Eve was perfect in every way for Adam and a delight to his eyes. And I believe that Adam was perfect in every way 
to Eve and a delight to her eyes. The point is that they were created for one another to have this special one flesh bond between them exclusively. So now we're at the end of chapter two. Let's draw out our theological applications. And these are gonna fall under four categories. Now the first of these I mentioned back when we looked at Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Gender distinctions are important. Gender distinctions are important. This is not some conservative slogan. It is revealed in the word of God. Each gender is meant to be a gift to the world. And as we'll learn in just a little bit, these distinctions have importance in the roles that we are called to emulate in marriage. God does not create us biologically equal, but rather that we should correspond to the opposite sex. Each gender brings something important to the table. And God's truth is for everyone as he is the creator and he deems what is best for his creation. Now, I realize there are strong cultural forces in the world that would have us eliminate gender or blur the distinctions between genders and tell us that we can choose to be what we want to be. But the God of the Bible does not give us that option. He views such dissension as rebellion. In his perfect plan, before sin enters the world, gender has a purpose. And as Christians, we must hold the line on such issues in love and in grace. Our attitude should not be one of anger towards someone struggling with gender or even someone seeking same-sex marriage, but one of love, recognizing that this is God's design, and it is right and it is good for humanity. We're not denying someone's right to happiness when we object on these matters. We know the truth that this is not what will bring them satisfaction that they are seeking. It will harm them, not help them. The second category is redeeming the role of woman as helper. Now, before someone objects to using the term helper, let me remind you that this is in the Bible. It's not my word, but it's God's word. And he not only applies it to the woman, but he also applies it to himself. This is a good word. In fact, it's an excellent word. Ladies, you are fellow bearers of the image of God. God made this point intentionally in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them. And the verse that followed that one, God commissions both the man and the woman to be fruitful, to fill the earth with more image bearers, and to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Your role in expanding the borders of the kingdom is no less important than men. You are to come alongside of your fellow image bearers and rule and steward the earth with us. Now, I want to say this specifically to the husbands and the fathers of daughters in the room. When you get home, Tell your spouse and your daughters that you value who they are as women. They need to hear that. They need to know that they are important as God created them and not just some subordinate to you. They need to hear that they are beautiful as the Lord God created them. They need to know that God honors their gender. You need to be the one to promote that in your household. And this pairs well with our third category. One specific role of your gender, men, is that of protector. 
The divine command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil came to the man before the woman entered the world. It was not reiterated after Eve's creation. Man was the keeper of God's word here. We also saw that Adam names the woman. That means he has a special responsibility of stewarding this precious gift from God. He is to provide spiritual leadership, not as dictator, but as protector. And sadly, Adam did not protect Eve when the serpent appears in chapter 3. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to see that all three of these points are emphasized by the Lord Jesus. This is found on page 824 of your pew Bible. Now, as you're turning there, allow me to give you the context. Jesus is approached by the Pharisees with a question concerning divorce. It was not that the Mosaic law permitted divorce, but that there was speculation about what were the grounds of divorce. Some said only in the case of sexual immorality. Others were more liberal in their interpretation and said it could be for any reason a man finds fault in his wife. It was a hotbed issue. They were trying to pigeonhole Jesus into giving an answer that would alienate him from one half of his hearers no matter what he answered. Cancel culture was alive and well even in the first century. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now look back there on that verse there. Jesus just affirmed gender distinctions. Remember, both male and females bear the image of God. They are God's representatives upon the earth. Jesus sees both genders as important to furthering the kingdom on the earth. I say that in context of what he will say a little bit later in verse 12. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, now Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24, specifically about the nature of marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus believed in the responsibility of the groom to cling to his bride with intent to seek that one flesh relationship with his spouse. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we hear those last words at weddings often. But that is not a warning to other people who might try to come in and disrupt a marriage. In context, that is a warning to the groom. It falls on him to protect what God has joined together. So much for the idea of feelings of love alone will keep a bride and groom together. Those squirrely feelings will fade at times. Jesus saying it is the responsibility of the husband to maintain his commitment to his bride, not look for ways to break it regardless of how he feels. Husbands, you are to be protectors of your families. That is your purpose of your spiritual leadership. It's not to lord yourself over families, but to serve them through the washing of the word. Wives may help you in this endeavor, and I think they should, but the responsibility falls on you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you haven't been doing this, but I want to promote it within you. And amongst the young unmarried men in the congregation, I want to help prepare you for this role. 
It is one that will bring joy to your life in fulfilling an aspect of what you were created to do. It's, it's not easy work, especially in this day and age, but it is fulfilling work, especially when you see the Spirit's work in the lives of your family through your guardianship of the Word as you minister to them. Recapping so far, gender distinctions are important. We must redeem the role of women as helpers in expanding the kingdom. Husbands are to be stewards and protectors of their families. And finally, marriage is to portray an incredibly theological principle. It is to be an example of Christ's commitment to his bride, the church, and the church's commitment to her husband, the Lord Jesus. I'm going to say that again. It is to be an example of Christ's commitment to his bride, the church, and the church's commitment to her husband, the Lord Jesus. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is found on page 978 of your pew Bible. In this letter, the Apostle Paul states that was once a mystery has now been revealed that Christ has come and fulfilled his mission. The purpose of marriage is no longer mysterious. In fact, it should be well known among God's elect. So let's start with those familiar and controversial words of verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This should not be offensive in light of what we just studied. If the bride is to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ, then it should be a joy, because the bride should know that her husband is not a dictator, but one that wants her to find her full joy in God as her protector. And corresponding to this, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here is his sanctifying role, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And here's that one flesh concept. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And Paul concludes here by quoting Genesis 2.24 as his proof text here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says this relationship with your husband or with your wife is to portray that one flesh relationship between Christ and his church. We should never think of the church without thinking of Christ. And we should never think of Christ without thinking of his body, the church. This is a true, undying, covenantal commitment to one another. This is more than just feelings of love. 
It is a commitment that says, I will go through the gates of hell for you in order to protect you and make you known as mine. I will lay down my life for you, my beloved. I choose you no matter what has stained you. And I will make it my life's goal to see that you are all the Lord God wants you to be in him, holy and blemish. That is what Christ did for all of us. And that is what we are to emulate in our marriages. Before we go, let me address just one group of people here within our congregation, the singles. I want to give you some hope. Some of you have never been married, and that can be for various reasons, some by choice, some because God has not brought into your life a mate. And some of you are single again. Some because your significant other left you, and some because you lost a spouse through death. In either category, you may hear these words today, and you're saying in your heart, oh, how I long to be with that special someone. I miss having their arms wrapped around me. I long to hear their voice where I feel so utterly lonely right now. Your longing for such intimacy is not wasted in the sight of God because marriage is only the picture. The reality is what lies in waiting for us when we reach heaven. The intimacy of marriage is only a foretaste of what we can expect when we see the reality, which is Christ Jesus himself. And he will fulfill every longing. Then you will be fully known without shame, and you will be loved unconditionally. Your longing for such a love right now is a good thing. Your heartache, desiring it, is a good thing. And the God of the Bible tells us it will be fulfilled at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will see your groom who gave himself up for you again. And those desires of your heart, they will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess we come so far short in our lives of emulating this incredible love that Christ has produced for us. That, Lord, in many ways we fail as husbands, we fail as wives, we fail as parents in trying to emulate this, of trying to portray this. But, Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient. And for my brothers and sisters who are aware of their weaknesses in this area. I pray, Lord, that they will understand that your grace is sufficient for today. There is no better time than today to begin emulating the credible, Christ-centered love that should be part of our marriages as a display of the glorious gospel to the rest of the world than to begin that today. You provide grace sufficient for that today. And so, Lord, I pray you would bolster my brothers and sisters who are seeking to emulate this. I pray, Lord, that, that you would work in those who are single among us, Lord, to, to promote the concept of marriage as being holy and good. 
I pray also, Lord, that the motivation for such is not just so that we can have lovey-dovey feelings for one another, but that we might be a display of what Christ has done so that it would create longing in our hearts that though what we have in our own current world right now of marriage is just a pale picture of what we will have in its fulfillment when we reach heaven with you. And that we will see our glorious, beautiful Savior, our bridegroom, who gave himself up for us, who has been washing us and cleansing us with the word, who is getting ready to present us to himself holy and blameless without blemish, and that we can stand naked and unashamed before him knowing that he loves us purely in every way. Let our longing be for that this morning, Lord. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.